I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Having moved from the country to a big, bustling church in the suburbs, I was being given an opportunity to prove myself. Stepping up, I didn't recognize the opportunity to pace myself as well. While church life raced along, home life took a back seat. Something was telling me to slow down or risk losing it all. But slow wasn't a speed I knew very well. This is Chapter 8, Part 2. Wanna rock your gypsy soul And it just like way back in the days of old And together we will flow As we sail into the mistake Long before I arrived, back in the 19-teens, the Church of St. Philip had moved into town from its original location on a hill to the north, where it stood across the road from Bethesda Lutheran Church, with whom it shared a notorious history. In 1829, Bethesda, a German-speaking immigrant congregation, needed a German-speaking pastor. Providentially, one showed up in the Reverend Vincent Philip Merhofer. The only problem was, he wasn't a Lutheran pastor, but a priest ordained for the Church of England. They worked out an arrangement whereby he would offer Lutheran worship in German on Sunday morning and Anglican worship in English in the afternoon. But the deal was, if Merhofer served both congregations in this way uninterrupted for ten years— Without Bethesda securing a pastor from its own denomination, the Lutheran congregation would be brought into the Anglican fold to become one flock. As that deadline loomed, so did the Upper Canada Rebellion. The Anglicans, by virtue of their bloodline, were loyalist. The Lutherans, by circumstance, were rebels. A musket, a standoff, a broken contract— and Reverend Merhofer shook the dust from his riding boots and crossed the road with his Anglican congregation to found the Church of St. Philip. There the two churches squared off for over 75 years, not speaking to each other, until the railroad was laid to the south, creating a new locus for the emerging town of Unionville. This left the Lutherans and the Anglicans stranded high on the hill, staring at each other across the road. So they both pulled up stakes and shuffled sheepishly into town, building their new churches a good distance from one another. This meant that when the quaint village church I inherited was not up to the demands of a large suburban congregation, St. Philip's had both history and land 
on its side, just north of town. Its cemetery remained there, and housing development would soon be making its way up the hill. When we decided to sell the little church in town and return to the congregation's original location, we weren't building a new church, we said. We were going home to become once again St. Philip's on the hill. Catch the Spirit was the pitch for our capital campaign. The diocese caught that vision, and the Spirit too. It committed several hundred thousand dollars in grants and as much again in loans toward a one and a quarter million dollar project, thereby creating a landmark destination church, a Cadillac among new churches. The congregation had to do its own part too, so we got busy with fundraising, both the bake sale variety and also a major capital campaign that featured a banquet, a professionally produced multimedia presentation, an unveiling of the plans complete with a scale model, and pledges that took us as close as we needed to get. I was aware that I was doing something most priests never get to do in a lifetime of ministry. I was aware, too, that other lesser churches were being denied support in order that our plum project could go ahead. I knew this because I served on the Diocesan Building and Property Committee. I was at the meeting when the commitment to St. Philip's was made. I was delighted by their support. But I was torn. An old friend from my youth group days at St. John's York Mills, who, like me, had gone on to be ordained, was the rector of a church in Whitby, on Toronto's less fashionable eastern edge. They, too, had building aspirations. I felt so badly that our project had won, while theirs would now languish. I called him up and said so. Even though this could go badly for me, I said he should raise a bit of a stink. It really wasn't fair. At the next meeting of the committee, the chair reminded the members of the importance of confidentiality in our deliberations. He reported that certain information had been leaked following our last meeting and that this was strictly and specifically forbidden. Red-faced, I suggested that he was talking about me. I had communicated with the other parish whose application for funds had been rejected. I defended my actions by saying that, as a Christian body, our decisions needed to be made with fairness in mind, both in substance and in appearance. They listened respectfully, even though some didn't agree. The chair thanked me for my candor, and then reiterated the rule. Not surprisingly, I wasn't reappointed to the committee when my term was up. The grand opening for St. Philip's on the Hill was unforgettable. On the day before our first Sunday service, we hosted an open house for the public. Ontario's Lieutenant Governor, the Honorable Lincoln, or Link Alexander, was our guest of honor, and we were joined by hundreds of townsfolk who poured through the building following a presentation in the body of the church. The young minister of Bethesda Lutheran, Don McLeod, who is to become a good friend, wrote a brief three-act, two-person sanctuary drama based on the history of our two churches. It began with me as the punctilious Catholic defender of the faith, Johann Eck, to Don's eloquent Martin Luther, ex-nemesis. Then me as the 
sanctimonious Thomas Cranmer upholding early Anglican belief to a silent imaginary congregation, then me as the parsimonious Reverend Merhofer sounding all high and mighty to Don's straight-talking Lutheran farmer, and then finally as ourselves. It really wasn't a fair fight until we got to the end. We concluded that our two traditions were in fact so similar that a Lutheran was really just an Anglican in Lutheran clothing, and that an Anglican was really just, Hey, I said, you're wearing my sports jacket. What? he said. So I am. On cue, we swapped jackets right then and there, mending as we did generations of enmity. On the Sunday, we held our first ever worship service in our new space. The morning sun shone through the windows above the altar, the organ rang out, and the church was packed. We had begun the service in the old church in town, where we lit two torches to be carried up the hill by a small team of runners. The rest of us got in our cars and drove ahead to receive the light at the other end in the new church. But something else transpired that weekend. In the preceding months, an active team of church members, including Sandy, my wife, had been working to cut through the red tape of the Federal Immigration Department. We wanted to sponsor a refugee family and bring them to Canada. We knew who the family was, even as new bureaucratic hurdles continued to block our way, a Guatemalan mother and her four children. They were languishing in a Mexican refugee camp following the disappearance of the husband and father for his socialist tendencies. The family fled when the mother's life was threatened as well. Things had looked hopeful. A way would open. Then the line went dead. Nothing. No one in Ottawa could tell us what was happening, where things stood, and when or even if the family would be arriving. Until that Saturday night, the eve of our first service in our new church, the committee chair received a call from an immigration official at the airport. Was someone coming to pick them up? On Sunday morning, there sat the family in the back pew in ill-fitting ski jackets, with eyes red and swollen, huddled close to each other as we asked God's blessing upon the new St. Philip's. Let us remember, we said, what all this effort and expense was about in the first place. It was not for our own edification that we had built a new church. It was for the sake of the world, part of which had just arrived on our doorstep that very morning. It's amazing how insubstantial neighborhood bullies become when the nation goes to war. Their proprietary claims on, say, Sunday school curricula, choir processions, and altar flowers fade into irrelevance beside a one-and-a-quarter million dollar project that requires all hands on deck. Besides, the new church attracted attention, and soon we were overflowing with new families who needed baptisms and newcomer visits and programs to keep them all engaged, and I was the one engaging them. The troublesome leaders who had resisted me when I first arrived now receded into the background, vestiges of some former regime. The opportunities for my professional growth abounded. I supervised divinity students 
and eventually received the assistance of Tim Grew, a half-time ordained assistant curate. I met with the local ministerial association and helped stick-handle the tricky leadership of an annual outdoor interfaith worship service. My preaching expanded to include a weekly children's talk featuring Bernard the Puppet, whose long arms and legs, attached at the hands and feet with Velcro, wrapped around my neck and body. Part monkey, part dog, he was a very naughty sidekick who undermined the neat presentations I'd prepared for the children before they went off to Sunday school by acting pretty much like a child himself. They loved it. I was also being drawn more and more into social issues, like the international freeze on nuclear arms, and, especially as we got to know the Guatemalan family and their troubling story, the rights of Central American nations to self-determination without U.S. interference. I feared confrontation with church members who might disagree with me, so I tended not to preach these issues. But I fueled my hypothetical arguments with the books and articles I read and with the company I kept, like young radicals in waiting. This would pass, but my doomsday analysis of the modern world lent a certain urgency to doing what I could where I was in my own little corner of that world. I was working so much and at so many different things all at once that I barely noticed Sandy's unhappiness at home. Or perhaps I did notice it, and it alarmed me. Perhaps my work at the church was my way of avoiding the work that was required of me at home. We had friends, mostly from among the clergy, but they weren't the same as family, and they didn't make up for the loneliness Sandy felt when I went out night after night for yet another meeting or another pastoral call. The summer of 1987, when we drove across the country to spend a few weeks with her parents in Calgary, Sandy cried as we entered the rolling prairies of southern Alberta. She felt she was coming home. I didn't know how to slow down or turn things around. I loved my work at St. Philip's. Most of the internal battles had by then been fought and won. We were entering a time of unbridled growth and possibility. It was exhilarating. But I was burning out. Maybe a move would be a good thing, to return us to basics and repair the damage done by my workaholism, or maybe a sabbatical, I wrote to the Bishop of Calgary, introducing myself. I asked about the possibilities of taking a sabbatical year in my wife's hometown. Might there be work for me there? Perhaps interim work, even part-time? I was only asking. As if my listlessness had caused a disturbance in the force, professional possibilities began presenting themselves, invitations and offers from further afield. The headmaster of Trinity College School in Port Hope was looking for a new chaplain for its privileged all-male student population. The bishops of two northern dioceses, Algoma and Kiwaton, were both scanning the Southland for new clergy, and they had their sights on me. My head was pounding from the ceaseless activity at St. Philip's. It was as if caffeine was being injected intravenously into my blood system, and I was racing all the time. I couldn't keep up, and I couldn't slow down. So I reached out to an old friend for advice. I went to see Ted Poulter, 
my supervisor of the chaplaincy program at the Toronto Western Hospital. He was pleased to see me, and even more pleased that I wanted to explore with him the possibility of a ministry in hospital chaplaincy. I didn't know if that's what I actually wanted, but I thought it would make a good opener for the conversation I needed to have with him. I wasn't sure that parish ministry was for me after all, I said. It was all just so much frenetic surface activity, like rearranging deck chairs. I was wearing myself out. I was neglecting my family. And I wasn't even sure I was accomplishing anything. He listened. But chaplaincy, I said. It's so immediate. So one-to-one. You can actually see the difference you're making. You can actually be taken seriously. It's so real. Ted dropped his head. When he raised it again, he looked me in the eye. Brian, he said, if you want to be taken seriously, you have to get serious. If you want it to be real, then you have to be real. It's not about where you do your ministry, in a church or in a hospital. It's not dependent on that. It's up to you. It was hard to hear his words. I was looking for an out, and he wasn't giving it to me. I wanted things to get easier. What he was suggesting made things harder. On top of all the pressures of my work life, I was now supposed to get real? What did that even mean? I felt young and foolish all over again, like the kid who had signed up for his chaplaincy program ten years ago, as if all the intervening years meant nothing. I returned to my work in the parish and resigned myself to heeding his advice. I began to think about a renewed commitment to St. Philip's, anywhere from two to five years. I needed just to stay put and work things out where I was. One day, I went to the hospital to visit Fred, an aging parishioner who was dying. The place was abuzz with activity. Nurses were changing shifts. The noise and the energy spilled into the room where I was trying to make contact with Fred. I sat by his bed, holding his hand, but no words would come. I left him sleeping, feeling like a failure. Later that evening, after a meeting at the church, I returned home, bone-weary, but something was pulling at me from deep inside. I apologized to Sandy, but I had to go out again. I drove back to the hospital. The hallways were darkened now, and quiet. Those who stirred did so with the pad-pad-pad of their soft-soled shoes. There were no raised voices, no intercom announcements. I slipped into Fred's room where he lay in semi-darkness, alone. I had brought a prayer book with me, but I knew I wasn't really there for him. I was there for the peace and quiet, and for the thin space between life and death that might just make things clearer to me. I took off my coat and sat beside the bed, listening to his labored breathing. Fred was all I said. I felt tears welling up in my eyes. I sat there silently, exhaling in convulsive sighs too delicate for words, like little sobs. Wherever Fred was that night, whatever it was he needed, I felt in the stillness that he was the one comforting me. I sat with him a long time. Then I stood to go, watching his chest rise and fall in tight little gasps, 
I placed my hand on his forehead and blessed him. Then I headed home. Something had to change. If I was going to stay at St. Philip's without having a nervous breakdown, if I was going to salvage my home life, I would need to have help. Tim, my assistant curate, had left to do other things. I was on my own in a parish that was too big for one mere mortal, especially a young one not experienced in setting boundaries. All the area bishops had been shuffled around by then, I don't know why, perhaps to keep the clergy of the diocese on their toes. I missed Bishop Brown. He had been a good mentor and a good friend. Taylor Price became my new bishop, a man I couldn't read at all. He seemed pleasant enough, but I made him nervous, in the way extroverts make introverts nervous. Where he was protective, holding things in, I was expressive, letting them out. Where he guarded his words... I was reckless with mine. I think he was always afraid I was going to do or say something that would embarrass him. I arranged an appointment to see Bishop Price. I wanted to apprise him of my work and specifically to begin a conversation with him about getting some help. The parish continued to grow. The newcomers kept arriving, and I couldn't keep up with it, despite my compulsive work habits. I had already had my conversation with Ted Poulter by then. I was looking for a way to dig in, to stay put, but I couldn't do it on my own. I hadn't yet learned the power of inscrutability. The distance between my brain and my mouth was too short for that. I operated on a faulty assumption that all people, especially people in the church, were trustworthy, and that if they weren't, they ought to be. Once again, It was all about the ideals, and not so much about the realities. I told Bishop Price I needed help in the parish. I was wearing myself out trying to do it all, visiting the newcomers and managing the programs and creating engaging, multi-generational worship for Sundays. A full-time assistant priest would help me focus on the things I did best and spread the workload around. I ought to have stopped there, but I didn't. I also told him, perhaps to underline how untenable my present situation was, that I had been thinking ahead to the day when I would leave St. Philip's. At that time, I said, Sandy and I might consider moving west, where she was from. In the interests of even further transparency, I told him I had been corresponding with the Bishop of Calgary along those lines, though it was all in the distant future. For now, I made it clear, I wanted to stay where I was to help St. Philip's enter its next chapter, and for that, I would need an assistant. Bishop Price nodded. Okay, that was a good thing. He had heard me. What he said, though, was that it was indeed very important that I get out to visit the newcomers, especially within a few weeks of their arrival. I found that odd as an encouraging word. Had he really heard me after all? Without a commitment from Bishop Price one way or another, I began casting about on my own for someone to whom I could throw a line, a priest who might be interested in working with me. That way, if I found someone, I could go back to the bishop with a plan, not just with a wish. 
a priest from Saskatchewan showed up as if on cue, a former dean of a cathedral who had just moved back to Toronto. He was coming up on retirement and searching for something transitional, a less demanding job to take him out. We met up and explored the idea of his working with me at St. Philip's. He saw himself doing more pastoral work, which he loved, like visiting seniors and newcomers, and less of the administration and leadership, which I loved. Perfect. A heavenly match, even. I returned to Bishop Price with my plan. All I needed was his approval and the willingness of the diocese to put some money behind it. But the bishop already had a plan of his own. He couldn't possibly appoint someone to work with me at St. Philip's, he said, and especially not a former dean, a senior priest who is higher on the pay scale and would therefore need to be paid more than me. Not a problem, I said. Not for me. I'd be happy to have both his help and his experience. Besides, he went on, cutting me off, you're restless. I can't really appoint someone to work with you as long as you're looking around, can I? What had he missed in what I had told him? Yes, I was restless. I admitted that. But I wanted to stay. For that to happen, I needed help. If he denied me that assistance, what choice would I have but to leave? Was the bishop playing with me? Was he forcing my hand? Did he actually want me gone? Is that what he was really saying? Outwardly, I was respectful. I thanked Bishop Price for his time and consideration. But inwardly, I shook my head. You think you can treat me like this? Okay, then I'm out of here. And I began to plan my next move. Within a few months, I left for another diocese. Bishop Price sent me a letter accepting my resignation, but with sadness, he wrote. It sounded sincere. I also heard from one of the other bishops in Toronto's College of Bishops, Terry Finley, who I knew through diocesan committee work. He wrote to say he would miss what he called my enthusiasm and directness. That sounded sincere, too. I began second-guessing myself. Was I perhaps making my move too soon? Had I overreacted? Had I missed something? Might this be a mistake? But it was too late. I was gone. I will be coming home. I've been reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if something you've heard here evokes thoughts or memories of your own, I invite you to post your comments in the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. With my move to Unionville, I was given a taste of success, though what that had to do with my actual ministry, I have no idea. But I liked it. When I moved again, I wanted that taste in my mouth. But now, not just from my parish, but from the wider church, which was all too willing to feed my ego and wring from me whatever blood it could, there would be no end to the church's demands, nor to my desire to fulfill them. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Stop now